Welcome to the Diverse Perspectives Podcast. I'm Angela Wong, Group President of Pfizer's Biopharmaceuticals Group. I've always been curious to learn from others, particularly those who think boldly and take action to create breakthroughs. So in each episode, I'll explore what motivates people to pioneer change and find out the lessons they've learned along the way. I hope this podcast inspires and empowers you to make your own breakthroughs. In the last year, billions of people have gone into and out of lockdown to contain the spread of COVID-19. We've all learned strategies to protect our health and minimize the risk of infection, but at the same time, we've experienced some of the most intense stress and uncertainty of our lives. Studies by groups such as the American Psychological Association show that people are really struggling to cope with prolonged pandemic-related stress. There's even talk of a global mental health crisis, which could persist well after the pandemic is behind us. And that's why today, I want to talk about how we can build not just physical, but psychological resilience. In spite of our challenges, there are ways to manage stress. So that rather than surviving day to day, we're developing the right behaviors and mindset to thrive. Joining me to delve into this topic is Joey Hubbard, Chief Training Officer at Thrive Global. Joey has over 30 years of experience coaching people to find direction and live better. He's worked with everyone from professional athletes to business leaders, and his insights can benefit all of us. Welcome, Joey. Thanks, Angela. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you, Joey. So to start, Joey, I would love to get your perspective on what you're seeing in the world right now with the renewed focus on mental health and well-being. I know that topics like these used to be considered taboo in the past, particularly in the workplace, but this has really shifted. So why do you think that has happened and what are the benefits of looking at our health more holistically? Well, as you know, we partnered with Stanford Medicine to really look deeply at this what we call global pandemic around mental health. We saw research showing that one in four people will experience a mental health crisis in their lives. And the impact on our economy is about $6 trillion by 2030. So we know there is a significant uptick in this. And we also know that eight in 10 employees will not seek treatment for their mental health challenge. They won't talk about it because of fear and shame. So we decided to bring it to the forefront, actually do what we call go upstream on this idea of what is mental health. And Dr. Leanne Williams, who led this research at Stanford, says that if we actually treat our brain in a way that allows it to take care of itself like you would do your body, right? Exercising and eating well, those types of things, that our brain can actually become one of our greatest assets and that we can get ahead of the idea of mental health so that mental health is a positive thing and we take away the stigma of mental health as, as a negative. So Joey, this, um, this notion of stress and what is around us is obviously a major topic of conversation right now. Um, so I wanna delve into that a little further and really talk about the science of stress. We often associate stress with our feelings and our emotions rather than recognizing how it factors into our brain's actual functioning and activity. And I know that your organization has teamed up with Stanford Medicine to research this. So I would love for you to share some of these key findings and what do they mean for us? 
Well, I think there's a couple of really important conversations to have around this, because what we know is that our brain functions very much, again, like a battery. And so what we found in the research from Stanford Medicine is that when our brain is charged, in essence, when we are doing fundamental things to keep our brain in its best state, and I'll tell you the big four. The big four are making sure that we sleep seven to nine hours a night, that we move at least three times a week for 20 minutes each, that we also make sure that we are eating a nutritious diet. So low in junk food, eating junk food, which we would call processed sugar, processed foods, actually can impact our productivity by as much as 66%. And then fourthly, making sure that we have connections. Connection is one of the most critical things that boosts the battery of our brain, the endorphins, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin, all get boosted by connection. So the four big things I mentioned helped us, or they're like preventative from even going into the stress response, but we all do it. Stress is unavoidable. It's part of our lives. What is avoidable is cumulative stress. Now, what Stanford discovered by using what's called functional MRIs is that the brain has eight distinct ways that it responds to stress. So over thousands of hours of mapping human brains, they saw patterns and every human being has a predisposition to one of those. So the four big things I mentioned helped us are preventative from even going into the stress response, but we all do it. Stress is unavoidable. It's part of our lives. What is avoidable is cumulative stress. So there are eight distinct ways. I'll take you through them really quickly that the brain responds to stress. Negative bias, people look through a lens of what we would call the negative affect circuit in the brain. We see the world as negative, situations as negative, opportunities as negative. We literally shut out the positive affect circuit and consequently only see the world through a negative lens. And we stop trusting that the world's gonna work out. Threat response is a biotype where our brain goes into what's called danger mode. It also triggers in the negative affect circuit, but in this case, your brain stops feeling safe in the world and it feels like it's under threat and it triggers the hippocampus, which then starts to produce cortisol, the stress hormone, and we feel overwhelmed. We feel flooded by what's occurring in our lives and ultimately we don't feel safe. Emotional numbness is the biotype where our brain literally moves into a state of what's called anhedonia. It shuts down the pleasure circuits in the brain and ultimately the things we used to enjoy, we used to like doing, we used to have fun with, that all goes away. Context insensitivity is the biotype where our brain loses contextual awareness in the world and it stops recognizing context between importance and non-importance. We don't follow through, we don't show up, we don't do what we say we're gonna do. It's challenging in work relationships, of course, because you have projects that are due, right? And if you don't recognize that this one's due today, this one's due in three months, you may work on the one that's due in three months, not recognizing that distinction. And then attention is the biotype where your brain has difficulty focusing, challenges in, in being able to kind of stay, follow train of thought, short-term memory seems to go. Biggest challenge within attention, of course, is that we've had to look at screens more in the last 15 months than ever before. That affects that attention circuit and then it makes it more difficult to focus. And then the last one is called cognitive fog. And in essence, our brain slows down. Our brain moves into a fog, a malaise. It's hard to move. And simple activities like getting out of bed, brushing your teeth become difficult to do. Now, what's important to note about all of that 
is those are naturally occurring ways that the brain responds to stress. So if you're listening and go, oh my gosh, I, I've got all of these, I'd say that's okay. It's normal. It's part of the way the brain responds to stress. We're going to talk a little bit about what you can do to interrupt those, but note that if you experience one or all, it's absolutely okay. You are normal. Well, thank you, Joey, for um, describing it so well, but also describing it in a way where I think all of us as listeners can relate and can recognize what these signs and symptoms are. Uh, but to your point, stress is not unavoidable. It's a part of our lives. So there's something that we can do about it. So I'd love for you to go into a little bit more of what you've learned at Thrive Global about how we can manage and uh, control the stress, at least the cumulative stress part that you have talked a lot about. Yeah, and, and it's an important thing for everybody to know that stress, again, is a normal part of being a human. You've all had those moments, though, where someone came to you and they said, oh, my gosh, the sky's falling. And you said, that's OK, we'll deal with it. Why did you respond so calmly in that moment versus another moment where you might have panicked yourself? A lot of what happens is, as I said, those upstream interventions are important and key foundationally to building resilience and your ability to manage stress. So again, I'm repeating, but I just wanna make sure you catch this. Sleep seven to nine hours a night, move regularly three times a week, make sure you're eating well and make sure you've got positive relationships in your life. That's the foundational element. Now, for all of these stress cycles that I mentioned, there's an interruption technique and several, in fact. I'll tell you a few of them. But the thing to note is when you start to experience stress, your goal is to just make it okay that stress is occurring, but don't allow the stress to accumulate, right? When your stress starts to go on and on and on, that's you that's creating that. When they look at the brain, what they note is that the brain doesn't distinguish between real or imagined danger or imagined stress. All of you can experience stress looking at a TV show. You're sitting on your couch, you're in a safe zone, everything's okay, but you'll see that you start to stress. You might even jump because of what happens on the screen. Your brain doesn't know the difference between real or imagined danger and stress. So part of your goal is to start taking charge over what you carry in your brain, what you carry in your mind. So a thriving mind means that you start to pay attention to what you are thinking about and how you're thinking about what you're thinking about. If I start worrying about a meeting that's coming in two weeks and I start thinking what we would call in a negative way about that, it's going to go wrong. They're not going to like me. There's going to be a problem X, Y, and Z. That's different by the way than planning for it. Here's how I want to approach it. When I start going negative in my thought process, I actually build stress around an event that hasn't happened yet. And I can experience two weeks of stress about that event. And then I'll get to the event and it goes well. And I just caused myself two weeks of stress and anxiety. 60 to 90% of doctor's visits now are stress related. So here's where you can start to take charge. And there's a few things, simple things that you can start doing that make a difference. One is start breathing. Now you may say I breathe every day. Well, there are very powerful breathing techniques. One's called box breathing that they used for Navy SEALs when they were coming back and experiencing PTSD from, from events when they were deployed. It's a very simple breathe in, count to four, hold it for four, 
exhale for four rhythmic breathing cycle that begins with a very deep exhale where you blow all the air out of your body and you do that cycle three times, you will go from the sympathetic nervous system where stress exists into the parasympathetic nervous system where relaxation exists. You can use it at night before you go to bed. It's a simple technique, but what we know is it affects every single biotype. Similarly, if you meditate on a regular basis, it'll also affect your ability to experience stress and it affects every single biotype. So just a couple of simple things there, that alone will start to make a difference when you're experiencing stress in the moment. No, that's great, Joey, and thank you for making it so simple, pragmatic, and things that all of us, I think, can put into practice. But as you know, whenever we want to make change, right, habits are hard to break. So I was just wondering whether you could take your experience one level further and help us to make this real. Can you share with us an experience of how you put something into practice and how it has helped you? Well, there's a few things that happened just during this pandemic with me. I am typically a very active person, meaning I learn through my touch and feel and senses and being around and moving and all of that. When I am in a hallway and I talk to somebody and they say hi or I give them a hug or we laugh, what we found in the brain is that boosts those oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, dopamine in our brain. It could charge our brain for 30 minutes to an hour, one experience like that. So when that got pulled out, I had to be very, very conscious of what I was doing to one, get that energy back. For me, I started getting outside more throughout the day, three minute, five minute, 10 minute walks where vitamin D, the sun got on my skin, where I could go sit, I went to a park. Sometimes I'd be on a phone call. There's a park not far from my house. I've got trees in my backyard. I'd go sit, sit in my backyard sometimes where I was starting to consciously engage myself more in nature, in environment. I even went to different parts of the country to just be in national parks and work for a week or two. I needed to do something to recharge myself at a time that I wasn't getting what I was used to, right? People around me. So I had to be conscious about that. And because I was doing as many as eight to 10 webinars in a day, I had to move more. I'd lost the movement element in my life. And movement is a critical component to keeping your brain charged. So I got out and I moved more. Now, what I saw was that it helped me sleep. I was a great sleeper. Pandemic started, I wasn't sleeping as well. I started moving more, my sleeping came back. So those were connected for me. So I tell you, it doesn't have to be a lot, but every day, at least 10 minutes of outside movement made a significant difference in how I started feeling and ultimately affecting my sleep and ultimately affecting my sense of connection. Thanks for sharing your personal experiences, Joey. And I want to pick up on something you just said, which was doesn't have to be a lot. Right. And I think for many of us, when we want to make change, we try so hard to go from where we are, the baseline to someplace very far away. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about this concept of micro steps and what you have found at Thrive Global in terms of great techniques to drive some of this behavior change that we find so hard. That's a great question, Angela. I actually spent a lot of my career kind of approaching behavior change from that perspective. Behavior change scientists will tell you that if you want to change a habit, 
If you look at all the research studies, there's one as short as 16 days, there's one as long as 254 days, and many in between. And what they, in essence, say is that you want to do a, a new habit, a new behavior every day consistently until the neural pathway is built. And again, 16 to 254 days, you can see in research studies. What we did was we applied that principle to this idea of what could any of us do? And we started approaching all of this through this idea of what can you do that is almost too small to fail, a micro step. You can look at James Clear's work at Harvard, B.J. Fogg's work at Stanford, Adam Grant's work at Wharton, where all of it's based on tiny habits, atomic habits, micro steps that allow you to do one thing every day, very simple thing, could be five minutes or less, that you do daily until eventually you build up in your brain this habit that that's how you do your world. I exercise for five minutes, for three and a half months, I exercise for five minutes a day until my brain went, okay, you like exercising again. And then I added more to it. So it can't be too small. Anything you wanna take on, make it easy, make it simple, make it small. You can do box breathing once a day for three minutes and that will cumulatively begin to affect your brain. We have another tool we call worry time where you can write down the things that you're stressed about. So those of you ruminators and negative bias, get a pad and a pen and every day for five minutes, just write down what you're stressed about. And at the end of that, you'll look at the list and you'll say to yourself, is there anything I can do about anything on this list? If there is, do it. If somebody you need to call, call them. But then you just put the list aside. Five minutes a day, every day, you will find in about two weeks, three weeks or so, that you start to change, that your stress levels go down. The unconscious worry you were doing, what's called in default mode, goes away. Why? Because you're, you're writing it down. And when you think about a worry in the rest of your day, you tell yourself, I'll do that tomorrow during worry time. That process, five minutes a day, over the course of a few weeks, will start to change your experience of stress. So it doesn't take a lot. Small things done consistently create significant impact. That's the goal with our microstep approach. Thank you, Joey, for sharing that. Um, again, another practical tip, right? Making it simple and easy for all of us to be able to follow. So maybe wrapping up, Joey, we're all looking forward to sort of the light at the end of the tunnel from the pandemic perspective. And I think life has changed so much for all of us in different ways. So what's your advice on how we can come out of the stronger and more resilient than before? And in fact, I would love for you to share your thoughts on how companies like Pfizer can do more for its employees. Some people have gotten used to being around their family more. Some people are in a situation where they may be more introverted and are going to be concerned about, okay, now I've got to go back in the world and put on my ability to connect with others again. Other people have been working on the front lines throughout this time period and have worked a lot and are feeling a little burned out. And okay, now what happens when we come back? And is it going to ramp up in the ways that just encourage us to continue to work this way? So I say for organizations to think about, one, how do we bring our people back in a way that they feel psychologically safe and that they feel like the organization has our best interest in mind as we return to work. Two, think about inclusion. There will be people that may work in a more blended style, so they won't be there every day. They may be there two or three times a week, or you may see some of that. 
And you want to make sure that those people feel included even when they're at home. And three, ask people to bring the best of what they've learned through this time period about themselves and about what works for them back into the workplace. So learning that moving throughout the day was important to me. When I go back to the office, and I'm a person who's excited about going back to the office, I don't want to just go back to the office and sit all day. I want to get back to the office and make sure that at least a couple times a day I go outside and I walk around. I know that tool really works for me. So bring the tools that have worked for you and, and the best of what you've learned back into the workplace when you come back. Because when we return to work, we want the workplace to be better than it was before. Not the same, right? Even better than what we did before. Exactly. Well, thank you, Joey, for sharing your wisdoms with all of our listeners here today. And I really love the examples that you shared, the concept of micro steps, the lists, the worry time examples and making lists of that. One of the things you've done for us today is that you've shown that a little understanding can go a long way and even small interventions can drive real change. And I really appreciate the guidance on what business leaders and companies can do as well to focus on their employees' well-being, because at this point in time, there's nothing more important than that. So thank you again, Joey, for joining us. And we look forward to continuing this very important conversation with you. Thank you, Angela. Anytime. Anytime.